Lord, we just thank you so much for this chance to come together and to declare the name of Jesus, the name above every name. And Father, as we open up our Bibles and study your word, we ask that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our mind, that we might see with absolute clarity who you are and what you desire for us. And we ask that you'd open the ears of our hearts that we might hear you speak to us. Lord, it's when you speak to us that we are changed. And so we ask you, please speak to us as we study your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, it's a short passage tonight. Josh always gives me like the best passages. I, you know, I think he likes me, I don't know. Uh, but one of these amazing passages, Colossians chapter three, verses one to four, and I'm just gonna read it one more time so we can begin to wrap our head around just this juicy, rich passage of scripture. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Twice in this passage, Paul tells Christians something they need to do. He uses the verb seek and set. Twice he says that they need to set their minds or seek the things that are above. Set, uh, set your minds on the things that are above, not the things on earth. Seek the things that are above. Uh, and so Paul is telling the Christians in Colossians that they need to be heavenly minded. They need to have a certain kind of mindset. They need to be heavenly minded. And this idea has received a lot of pushback. I don't know if you're aware of that. You know, it wasn't too long ago in London, the, the new atheists had a whole bus campaign and on the buses in London, you would see this. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. See, implicit in this little bus campaign is the idea that one of the problems in life, one of the worst things you can do, is start believing in heaven and the afterlife. And the next thing you know, you're just going to kind of miss uh, what life is about. And you're just not going to enjoy life. And in fact, this pushback has become a part of our common language. Uh, when you think about different phrases that are out there, uh, when you think of someone who's down to earth, right? Uh, that's, a, that's good to be down to earth, right? Or someone whose feet are on the ground. That's a good person if their feet are, is on the ground. They're in touch with reality. But have you ever heard the expression, uh, do not be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? You see, even in our modern parlance, this idea of being heavenly minded uh, gets pushed back. And, and, and the idea is that if you're heavenly minded, you are out of touch. You're just going to miss out. Well, there couldn't be any idea more opposite than what the Apostle Paul is going to say here in Colossians. You see, we're beginning a new section with chapter three. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to go through and itemize all these ways being heavenly minded uh, it, it gets worked out in your life. All these ways in which you're able to become a person who, who when bad things happen, you don't become bitter. A person when, when you're in, uh, the world is terrible, you don't get you know, totally overcome with uh, debilitating anxiety. A person who moves through life with freedom and power and a profound peace. We're going to see this in Colossians 3. And so Paul would say, those who are heavenly minded, those who are heavenly minded are the most earthly good. 
They are the people that are able to live with this freedom and power and peace. And so we're going to look at how Paul develops this tonight. Um, and we're going to do it with four points. So I've got four points. They're all P's. I do that mostly for me, you know, so I can remember where I'm going. Um, first, we're going to look at who the people are who are to have this mindset, this heavenly mindedness. And then we're going to look at how they practice it. And then we're going to look at uh, what is their focal point. And then finally, we're going to look at the proof that they have this mindset. So the people, the practice, the focal point, and the proof that they have this mindset. And the first one, the people that are to have this mindset, it's pretty basic, it's pretty easy. Paul here is talking to Christians. It's simple. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You've been raised with Christ. They have died with Christ and they've been raised with Christ. Now, why is Paul using this language? Well, Paul is using this language metaphorically at one level. See, Paul is saying that one of the ways to understand what it means to become a Christian is it's almost like you died and came back. It's a metaphor. To become a Christian is to become, when you, when you encounter Jesus Christ, it's like you suddenly come back into an entirely new way of life. The Bible uses many metaphors to describe this experience. One night, uh, a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, what am I lacking? And Jesus says, you need to be born again. In other words, Jesus was saying, you need to experience something that's like you suddenly enter back into the world as a whole new you and there's a whole new world. Or earlier in the book of Colossians, Paul uses the metaphor of darkness to light. Becoming a Christian is like moving from a kingdom of darkness, a world of darkness where you're stumbling along in life and you're trying to find your way and you feel lost to suddenly it's like someone turns on the lights and you can see yourself and you can see other people clearly and you can see God. It's like coming into a kingdom of light. Well, here Paul talks about this idea, this metaphor of dying and coming back to life. And he says, these Colossians that uh, they've experienced a whole new life. They've died to an old way of life, a life of selfishness, a life of self-centeredness, a life where you're just thinking of yourself, a life in which you don't know God, a life in which you don't really understand what you're doing in this world, to a life in which you know who you are and you know why you're here, a whole new life. And so Paul talks about Christians being those who have died and come back to life. But you know, the way Paul's talking is not that uncommon. It's not that uncommon. You know, there's so many old legends and myths and adventures and epics, uh, you know, if you, if you begin reading, as well as modern blockbusters, you know, that sell uh, so many tickets that have the same kind of theme, the same idea. There's an ordinary person living an ordinary life, and then something happens. I don't know, they find a portal or they get swept back in time or they get swept forward in time or, you know, lots of different things, but suddenly they're in a new world and they discover in this new world that there's some kind of cosmic conflict. There's some gigantic conflict between good and evil. There's these forces of evil and evil's winning always. Evil's winning when they show up, right? And then suddenly they somehow get swept into this situation. And typically what happens is it feels like they're going to lose and evil's going to win. And then victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. And then they suddenly, uh, you know, there's redemption and evil is defeated. And then they return to their life. They come back to their life. This is, I mean, this, this is a common plot. And when they come back to their life, what is it? They're like a new person. 
They're like a whole new person. And why is that? It's because they know about this other world. They know that in the end, victory, uh, there's a victory there. And they seem unaffected. They have a whole new vantage point. They have a certain freedom and a certain kind of virtue. And they're heroic. And, 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 and when they return to life, they're just like a new person. They're tender. They're kind. And why is that? Well, on one level, it's because they know that the great evils were vanquished. And so when they come across terrible things in their ordinary life, they think, well, if the greatest evil was vanquished in that other world, this is nothing. They think of the noble people they met when they were there, right? They met people that were so virtuous and kind and incredible. And those people inspire them to live a different life. And then usually in these sagas, there's some part of the story where somebody had to give their life for them the ultimate sacrifice. It's not really a good story unless somebody has the ultimate sacrifice, right? And so as they come back into their normal life, they remember that ultimate sacrifice and that gives, us, that gives them this kind of heroic quality, this tenderness, this self-sacrificial quality. This is a common storyline. And we, we watch it, we think, wow, that'd be so great because nothing phases these people. They've seen the great fires quenched and, and so they can't worry about the little fires in their life. They've seen the great diseases healed so they don't worry about these relatively small diseases in their world. They've seen the great battles won so they don't worry about these little battles they face. Nothing seems to phase them anymore because they died and they came back in a certain sense. They left the world. They saw that there was a bigger world. They saw there was another world and they realized what was going on there and suddenly they could enter back into their life in a whole new way. And this is what Paul is saying. To be a Christian is a person that is aware of that other world, that other realm, knows what's going on there, and that therefore impacts their life. They've seen a whole new world and it's changed who they are. And that's what it means to be a Christian. I mean, maybe we're just here fooling ourselves, but if the stuff we believe is true, if Jesus Christ is real, if his resurrection is real, if he vanquished the powers of sin and death, if that really happened, if he really is bringing his kingdom and that's really true and this isn't just a big game we're playing, then that changes everything about how we live our lives here and now. And this is the engine that drives us as Christians. This mindset drives us as Christians. This is the thing that gives us our power. And Paul is saying, remember that. Don't forget it. You've seen it. You know it's true. Hold on to that. Set your mind on that. You know, St. Augustine, uh, this is a popular story. I'm not quite sure if it's true, but there's a popular story about St. Augustine. You know, St. Augustine, before he became a Christian, he was very promiscuous loved to party, had lots of women. And one day Augustine was walking down the streets of Carthage, I guess. And uh, one of his lovers came up to him and said, Augustine, Augustine. And Augustine kind of saw her out of the corner of his eye and he just took off running. And she didn't, she didn't know, did he see me? What's going on? So she ran after him and eventually got stuck in a blind alley. And she came up to him and says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he said, yes, but it's no longer I. See, for Augustine, his life was changed. Augustine had become a person who was marked by self-control. He no longer lived a life of self-indulgence because he had met Jesus. And you can read Augustine's story of his conversion in the Confessions. Where did this resolve not to live this self-destructive life come from for Augustine? 
Well, you know, we know where it didn't come from. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Josh looked at chapter two of Colossians and the Colossians thought they could have the kind of life of change and self-discipline, that they could live into this kind of life of freedom and power and stability by certain things. They were mistreating their body. They were following all kinds of rules and regulations and they're following rituals and following holidays. And they thought if we just do all this external stuff, they should be able to live a life that is marked by that kind of repose and self-control. But Paul says at the end of chapter two, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom, but they, have, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's saying, no, these externals are never going to be the basis for genuine change. It must start deep within through an internal mindset that involves an internal practice. It involves an internal practice. And I just forgot I'm doing slides. Here we go. How do you do it? The practice the practice. Okay. What is this practice? Um, well, the practice involves two things. First, it involves the mind. It involves the mind. Set your minds on things that are above. All through the Bible, we read about the importance of the mind. Even the word repentance, which is the word metanoia, simply means a change of mind. Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the Bible recognizes that the mind is incredibly important. And the Bible is absolutely right. We know that the mind is incredibly important. It's an incredible organ, right? Think of your mind for a second. It weighs about three pounds. It has the consistency of jello. It uses three cans of soda filled with blood kind of running through every three minutes it has a hundred million different cells, brain cells in there. And you know, in spite of our advances in technology, it remains the fastest computer in the world. It's capable of one billion computations per second. Here is the most powerful computer in the world. And what does it run on? Glucose. <laughs> okay. It's amazing. And the mind is capable of so many achievements. With the mind, we can build cathedrals and computer codes and pyramids. We can build submarines that can go down to the bottom of the sea. And we can land the JPL 2020 Preserver Rover on Mars. Amen, Larry James? All right. With it, we can compose music. Amen, Marcus Love? We can write breathtaking literature. Amen, Ryan Smirnoff? We can create stunning art. Amen, Mike Basoli, and produce theater, even theater for children. Amen, Kellen. Where's Kellen? I can't see anybody. Amen. Yeah, the list is endless. We could go on and on because the mind is incredible. You know, they did a study at the USC Neural Imaging Lab and found out that the average person thinks 70,000 thoughts a day. That's 4,375 thoughts per hour. You're going to think about 3,000 thoughts while I'm giving this message, which then I thought, I hope that I'm looking okay. Uh, 72, 72 thoughts per minute. What are we thinking about? What are we using our mental capacities for? Where are we setting our mind? What is consuming us? Paul says, it's very important what you're thinking about. Transformation begins by setting your mind. And so a quick word of application, what do you do when you first get up? I've noticed that when you first get up, those first few minutes are critical 
for how you're going to think through the rest of the day. Anybody else notice that? It's really bizarre. Like if, I, if you get up, if I get up and the first thing I do is I'm on my phone and I'm like on Facebook, the day's ruined. <laughs> totally ruined. <laughs> you know, so what I try to do is I try, when I get up, the first thing I try to do is I try to get, just slide right out of bed onto my knees and I immediately try to say a prayer and get my mind moving in the right direction, right? What do you do with your mind? Where do you spend your thinking? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This all, 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 this idea is the life of a Christian is a person that's constantly rehearsing the truths of God. So the first thing that transformation requires is it involves your mind, the practice of uh, attending to what you're setting your mind on. But it also involves something else. You know, in verse 1, it says, seek that which is above. Or some translations say, set your heart on that which is above. The word is really seek, but the idea behind seek is this emotional investment. If you're seeking something, you're not just, you know, stoic about it. When you're seeking, you are emotionally engaged. And so you can't separate what you think about from what fills your desires and what moves your heart. In fact, they're kind of a loop, aren't they? When something fills your heart, when it fills your mind, it begins to impact your heart. And then when your heart is impacted, you begin to think about it. I don't know about you, but the first time I walked into an aquarium store when I was in middle school, it was one of those wonder years experiences. I mean, it was all dark in there. There was all these fish. And I was like, whoa, it's like a magical world. And so I was just mesmerized. And I started thinking about fish. And I started going back to the aquarium store. And the more I went back to the aquarium store and I started thinking more about the fish and there's this kind of fish and that kind of fish and, oh, they got that color, the purple rocks, those are cool. You know, it's like suddenly I'm entering deeper, deeper into this world. I started saving my money. I started getting odd jobs in order to get an aquarium. I saved up all this money. I mean, I was into it. I was a middle schooler that was into aquariums. I had set my mind on aquariums. I was seeking aquariums. That's, you want to know what was going on. When I had spare minutes, I'm thinking about, you know, the tiger barb. That's a cool fish. I need some of those, right? See, Paul is saying something that's actually not that strange. We all set our minds on things. We can't help but set our minds on things. We can't help but get into loops where something grabs us over and over and over again. That's why it says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. In other words, if you want to know how you're living, check out what you're constantly meditating on. What's filling your unguarded moments? What's capturing your thoughts? This is where the discipline of bringing our minds back to scripture is so powerful. So what are we to set our minds on though, you might ask? What exactly are we to be setting our minds on? This moves us to our next point. What is it we're to envision? What is the focal point? Set your mind on things above. Yeah, but what things? That's a good question. What things? You know, heaven is going to be an interesting place. We know that. Uh, there's reason to believe we're going to be eating in heaven. The Bible talks about the marriage supper of the lamb. We know that when Jesus was raised, he came back, he ate some fish. And so all of you foodies can rest uh, okay tonight, knowing that there will be amazing food in heaven, food that would make our food seem horrible, right? Amazing food. And we know that there was a great choir of angels that came when Christ was born. And 
we have every reason to believe that there's amazing concerts in heaven. So all you music lovers, you can rest assured that there will be amazing music in heaven, music and concerts that makes this, you know, even the best concerts we have seem pitiful. And then we know that Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you. And so if you're like me and I love running or cycling through neighborhoods where there's amazing architecture, anybody else, you know, Dale Brown, you out there? You know what I'm saying? Amazing architecture. If you love architecture, I've got news for you. The mansions in heaven will make even, you know, San Marino just seem like a slum. You know what I'm saying? Is that what we're supposed to set our mind on? You know, these, it's fun. It's fun to think about these things. I'm not saying it isn't, you know. Even the Bible teases us a little bit. First Corinthians says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard all he's prepared for those who love him. C.S. Lewis says that if we were to even begin to experience the pleasures of heaven, we would be overloaded. Until we have glorified bodies, we couldn't handle it. He says, think about even the basic pleasures we have here. We struggle with those. What would it be like to taste of the fountainhead, that stream of which even our lower pleasures prove so intoxicating, right? What is, what is it we're supposed to be seeking and setting our minds on? These things? Heaven will be off the charts, but this is not what Paul tells us to set our minds on. And in fact, if you look at the text, you can see he tells us what we're supposed to be setting our mind on. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You will be revealed with Christ. We are to set our minds on our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Let me explain. And you can see it here, actually. There are two ways that Paul speaks about this union. There's an already aspect and there's a not yet aspect. There's a past tense and then there's a future tense. We're to focus on the fact that we have a share already in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You died past tense with Christ. You've been raised past tense with Christ. See, Paul is saying something has happened in time and space and we have participated in it already. That is strange, isn't it? I mean, you know, here I am. I'm like some California dude here. And there was Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And somehow what happened back in history, I was involved in that. And you, if you're a Christian, were involved in that. That's a strange thing. What is he talking about? What is this thing? And why is it so important for us to have freedom and power today? Why is it so important for us to set our minds on these things? Why is it so important for us to believe these things happened? What is he talking about? You have to understand what Paul means when he says that you have died and been raised with Christ. This is essential. This is at the very center of what it means to be a Christian. You know, the essence of being a Christian is not that I am emulating Christ. It's not that I'm listening to Christ, not that I'm obeying Christ, not that I'm loving Christ. Even those are all good things to do and Christians should do them. But the essence of being a Christian is that I am in Christ. I am in Christ. In fact, that is the most common expression the Apostle Paul uses. He loves that in Christ. And so... The heart of the Christian faith is this. What God says is true of Christ can be true of you. This is called the gospel. It's the good news. And so when it says we died with Christ, it means that Christ died and so did we die. What does that mean? It means it's as if we died on that cross. 
and paid for our sins and torment ourselves because Christ did that. We get to share in that act. Why? Because he did it. We did it. Christ was raised. You were raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. And what does it mean to be at the right hand? This is an old expression, right? But it used to be, back in the day when there were kings and queens, to be on the right hand meant that you had immediate access. You had intimacy. You had fellowship. You were right there. You were someone who, was, who had the ear of the king. Someone who had intimacy with the king. You know, when Christ came back and was raised and the Father welcomed Christ back in and he was seated at the right hand, the Father's heart burst with love because here was Christ, the Son who emptied himself out of love. He left glory. He came down. He lived this incredible life, this perfect life of nobility and love and self-sacrifice and wisdom and honesty and purity, a life of kindness, a life of truth, a life that we all know we should live, that we wish we could live, that we know we can't live. Christ lived that life. And then he comes back from the grave after making the ultimate sacrifice. And then he is elevated up to heaven and the father's heart bursts in love. The father welcomes his son and he lavishes his love on him and says, sit down at my right hand. Now, hold on to your seat. You've been raised with Christ. The father now treats you as if you had lived that life that Jesus had lived as if you were every bit as lovely as he is, as if you have been raised and seated. Don't you see what we're saying? To become a Christian is to recognize that you need Jesus to do something you never could do for yourself, ever. You need him to die for you. You need him to be raised for you. And you need to be able to partake in what he's done in doing that. And you need to humbly receive that as a gift. And maybe you say, that's too good to be true. You know what? Maybe it is. Maybe it is, but you got to try. Talk to God. Ask God, Lord, God, if this is even possibly true that you did this for me, I want a piece of that. Open up my eyes. Open up my heart. So that's the past tense, the already. This has already been accomplished. And becoming a Christian is saying, I want to be a part of that. But there's a not yet factor. There's a future tense. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The Christian is somebody who has resurrection power in them. They already are a part of the resurrection life. They already partake of it. And you know what? It's hidden. It, it, it won't appear till you appear in glory with Christ, which kind of puts me at ease because I don't always look very resurrection life. I don't know about you. Sometimes it pops up here and there, right? Sometimes a little bit of that comes out. But you think about like the stone, the, a stone that, you know, is just there, a big stone. Michelangelo would look at that stone and think, I can see a piece of art in there. And that's what God does with us. We just look like a, a rock, but the Holy Spirit is chiseling away secretly in our lives. And it won't be until that day when Christ appears, when Christ returns, that we will also appear in glory. This is what theologians call the doctrine of glorification, that someday we will be revealed and we will shine like the lights we were meant to be reflecting God perfectly. I don't know about you, but I like all those TV shows that are all about renovations. 
there's the home review, you know, the great home fix up and re- they take some nasty home. You're like, I would never live there. No, don't get that one. Burn it down. Like we're going to get that one. They see it somehow. No, no, this has got good bone. We're going to, we're going to, and you're like, no way. And then they give you little clues, you know, or maybe it's a car, like the, some junker, you know, it's all, you're like, no, just get rid of it. And like, no, they take that. Somebody can see it. You know, the master designer can see it and they start working on it. And then they give, doing the show, they're, they're cruel. They just give you little clues like, you know, oh, I went to Target and I got this and it'll look great. And you're like, okay, how's that going to help this junker? You know, and, but what you're waiting for and you know what's coming is the big reveal, right? And it's not until the end of the show and then you see the big reveal and you're like, holy cow, that is not the same home. That is not the same car, right? The big reveal, That's what Paul is saying. If you're a Christian, you have a big reveal coming. Okay? And that, when Christ returns, God is going to finish up. And and it'll be like at the very end, right? He's going to finish it up. And we will be revealed. And we will be brilliant. We will be glorious. We will be able to reflect God perfectly. You know, we're all marred masterpieces that were meant to reflect God, and we will be glorious. We reflect God perfectly just like Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ reflected the Father perfectly. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We will reflect God the way we were meant to. We'll be like little Christ. We will be formed into the very image of Christ. You know, a while back, Christians used to wear this little bracelet, What Would Jesus Do?, some of you probably did that. I thought it was cheesy. Shame on you. Just kidding. It's okay. It's cool. I know you love Lord. It's good. But what would Jesus, you know, if this is true about us, maybe a better question is what will my future self do? Because if I'm going to be reflecting God perfectly, I'm going to be just like Jesus Christ. What would my future self do? That's a good question to ask. Or if we want to put it in the language of Soren Kierkegaard, by God's grace, now by God's grace, I will become myself. This is what is going to happen by God's grace. We will finally come into our true selves and be what we are intended to be. Okay, we've seen the people. This is for we've seen the practice. We've seen the focal point. And then finally, when do you know you have it? What is the proof? Let me end with this. Maybe you're asking, am I doing this? Am I setting my mind? Is this what I'm doing? I want to, I want to end with two kind of diagnostics that can let you know whether or not you are setting your mind on things above. How do you know that you have this Christian mindset? How do you know you're living this way? You know, in the next few weeks in chapter three, we're actually beginning a new section next few weeks and Pastor Josh is going to pick up uh, next few weeks. Uh, We're going to be looking at all of these different uh, virtues, right? That this fundamental drive, the setting of the mind is then going to feed and develop. So we're going to see that. Paul's going to talk about it in terms of like, it's actually a clothing metaphor, putting off and putting on, okay? Um, So um, that's coming up. But there's two simple diagnostics that that I want to give you, um, and and this will kind of um, be a way, and one's a negative and one's a positive, and and these will give you a way to kind of answer that question if you're you're actually doing this. And the first is a negative. Um, And it's simply this. You can know whether or not you are setting your mind on your union with Christ um, by your response to the circumstances in your life. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Why was 
Paul like that. And Paul doesn't say we never, you know, have trouble. We don't have an emotional life. You know, we're robots. But he said, you know, when things go horribly bad, we're not completely lost. We have this certain kind of inner repose. And what is that? That's because Paul knew how to set his mind and his heart on Christ. If you're going to constantly be setting your mind on other things in this world, you will get bogged down. If you set your hope on politics or romance or on a certain kind of financial prosperity or your circumstances working out a certain way, when things go bad, it will put you sideways because you have nothing else to stabilize you. This world is passing away, the Bible tells us. This world is in flux. And there is a new world breaking forward that Christ is bringing. But if you set your mind and heart on the things of this world, get ready for a wild ride. Get ready to be a person who doesn't know how to navigate circumstances. But if you want to be a person who doesn't get bitter when bad things happen, if you're a person who doesn't live with absolute despairing anxiety when the world's falling apart, if you're a person uh, who can be perplexed but not completely adrift, then chances are you are already setting your mind on the right thing because that's what Paul talks about. So how you go through difficult circumstances indicates where you've set your mind and your heart. But then a positive diagnostic before we close. Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I do not consider that I've taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How do you know you have set your mind? It's very simple. Do you have a vision for your life? For Paul, he had a vision and it was crystal clear. He was driven by this vision. It was something big. Yes, forgive me for quoting Sean Mendez's song, Something Big. Something big, I feel it happening, out of my control, pushing, pulling, and it's grabbing me. Feel it in my bones. That was Paul's life. Paul knew he was a part of something big. And it got him out of bed in the morning and it made him move and live. And he could hardly wait to be a part of this mission that God had set him on because he was constantly setting his mind on what Jesus Christ had done and what Jesus Christ was doing. And it moved him and he had spiritual ambition. Spiritual ambition. Paul says later on, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, run in such a way as to get the prize Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And so I want to close with this. Do you have spiritual ambition? Are you setting your mind on the future when you will be revealed with Christ? Do you constantly reference your life in light of what Christ has done for you, that you have died with Christ, that you've been raised with Christ, that you are embraced by the Father, that you have perfect access to the throne and that you one day will be revealed in glory. Does this then mark your life? And this, does this become the way in which you set up actual goals for your life? See, Paul kept running to the very end. He didn't just peter out and die off because he knew that the Christian life was one where you get closer and closer and closer 
to union with Christ. And so you can feel it bigger and bigger. Something big is happening. That's what it means to set your mind on things above. You get swept into a momentum and you continually think about your resources and your time and your energy and your circumstances and you get spiritually ambitious. And you say, Lord, how many people can I share your good news with this year? How many different ways can I become a different person by your grace this year? You don't spend all your time getting lost in the news and all the things in our world. You have a deeper force pulling you forward. Don't you want to be a part of that? That's what God is calling us to. Set our minds on things above. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this rich text that shows us the very core of what it means to be a Christian that we can be in you, that we can have union with you, Jesus, that you came down and you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that you have made access to the Father totally open as a result of that. And that one day, Lord Jesus, that we will, we will be displayed brilliantly, we'll be glorified, we will be doing that in your company and with the Father. And Lord, we thank you that you have done all these things for us. We ask that you would make us people who set our minds continuously and our hearts continuously on this good news of everything you've done for us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.